There's been much discussion about whether or not we need rent controls. The Greens have been calling for an immediate rent freeze followed by limits on rental increases linked to inflation or wage growth. Housing Minister Megan Woods doesn't want either. Ireland rental market issues, they've been in the spotlight. There are just 716 rentals available in a similar size population. That's nationwide in Ireland from August the 1st. In Dublin, there are just 292 rentals available. And it's put down to, in part, a complex system of rent control, say as critics. Landlords are exiting the market. So uh, with us is Ashok Jacobs from Renters United. Kia ora, Ashok. Kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. How do you read this, Ashok? Does this give you pause for thought on rent controls? Not really, because, like, it's the same argument that has been levelled mostly by property management groups and landlord groups against rent controls since the 1980s. And I mean, the Irish example is like is really interesting to me. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah. they have a really complex system where a commission reviews rent prices on average, basically neighbourhood by neighbourhood, uh, over you know every, every however many weeks, and then determines what rent prices are going to be set uh, accordingly. And that that was actually something that was implemented by a conservative government in Ireland, so not necessarily like a loony left loony lefty, you know, <laughs> not a bunch of not 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 a bunch of lefties. They have this sort right. of Finn Gale, Fianna Foyle uh, coalition that has governed the country for most of the past, you know, hundred years. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very bureaucratic and it's almost like a technocratic fix to what is a massive shortage of housing, which is something that's been building up in Ireland. Yeah. For many decades, and I mean that probably sounds familiar because we have basically the same problem in that since the 1970s we haven't really built any housing. The housing market has essentially been existing houses, mostly rentals, being pawned between landlords and property investors. So, so here you've the got actual, this. Yeah, sorry, Aisha, keep going. The actual like the actual numbers of housing, the houses that we built, mostly that were mostly driven by the state before the 1970s. Has um, has you know declined in real terms over the past couple of decades, and that's exactly the same problem that they have in Ireland, and that's why they're in a similar situation. To okay, Ireland. so it's historic, and there are other layers to it. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, yes, it is the Irish Property Owners Association, but they have come out finding this what they see as a challenging regulatory and tax environment, being responsible for the exodus of landlords so much so that now. Um, the, the increasing pressure means that the government is now considering tax breaks for landlords. What's to stop the same thing happening here if we were to um, have some type of rent control? Well, I mean, I think the association between rent control and like the housing shortage is kind of disingenuous as well because rent the only the only purpose of control on rent is is to do what it says on tin is just make sure that rent prices are stable and are only able to be increased under very very specific conditions. I mean, it doesn't actually promise to do anything about, like, actual existing like physical shortages of housing. And I think the, 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 um, the idea of landlords exiting the market being a bad thing in Ireland is something, again, I would also contest, because in New Zealand, I think one of the things that the government recognises is that we need most many landlords to exit the market because there are a lot of people who are just massively over leveraged and can't afford to maintain a rental home 
to uh, you know to to a to a standard that's dignified and decent, and I, I think that's the reason that our cities are filled with so many like dilapidated villas. Oh well, let's bring in Heather Roy. Yeah, sorry, I'll just bring our panellists and they might have some comments. And I mean, that's fair enough, isn't it, Heather? Just uh, rent control is simply do what it says on the tin. Um, limit the extraordinary rent that some are um, facing. Well, I think the international example does show that, and not just in Ireland but elsewhere, that rent controls do reduce supply and distort the market over time and can lead to a shortage of housing for tenants. And not, look, we... I think we have to think about this in terms of not everybody can afford to buy a house and so there has to be enough available rental accommodation for people and I think the government has done quite a good job in some respects in terms of having a warrant of fitness. I don't think it should be mandatory but actually that that, that does help start raising the um, the standard. But what I struggle with is there seems to be a bit of an, uh, an attitude really at the moment that all landlords are dodgy. And I think it's actually a minority who are dodgy, and we are hitting everybody uh, as if they are dodgy. We have to remember that there are also some dodgy tenants, but the majority um, are there, yes, to make an investment and ma- therefore That's make exactly money. Right, but they also, but they also, they also are needed because not everybody can afford a house. And look, I've had, I, as a student, I rented a house. Uh, and or a series of, of flats, and I had some very good landlords who, um, yes, they were making money, but when there were problems, they were very quick to fix things. I would say that, I mean, it's all well and good that you've had a good experience, Heather, but if you actually look at the statistics, I mean, like between 50 and 80 percent of New Zealand tenants live in a home that is conti- conti- continually damp and mouldy. Yes, I mean, I've, had, I've had some of those too. But the problem, is, the problem, the real problem, is that the, the recognition that the market has not served to regulate and stabilise the price of rent in the way that was promised in the 70s and 80s, and that's why there are some countries that are again looking at rent control. The Irish model is not one that I personally would advocate for, okay. but that's what's happened there under the. All right, Alan Blackman. Yeah, I guess um, Heather made the point, and I'll I'll back that up, that if it wasn't for landlords, some people would have nowhere to live. And so, you know, obviously we need landlords. Um, I guess, Ashok, you said that um, between 50 and 80% live in damp and mouldy houses. I would sort of perhaps uh, say that there's quite a few people who own their own house that also live in damp and mouldy houses just for the mere fact that, you know, they're struggling to pay their mortgage and so they can't sort of do the necessary repairs on um, their house. About the whole, I guess, rent control thing, um, you know, if you if you bring those in, then the I guess the renters are protected to a certain extent. Um, but then what about the owners, the landlords? Uh, you know, if the interest rates go sky high, as as they have done over the past, what, couple of years or so, up from, you know, a couple of percent to now, what, is, what are your mortgage rates now, 6 7%, something like that? Um, you know, then what do the landlords do about that if if they can't increase their um, rents to cover that um, eventuality? And you know, I can I can certainly see both sides of this, but okay. I think you're right. I think I think the landlords do get a bad name from just a few um, you know rogues. I'd say so. Yeah. Final thoughts, Ashok. I think there's. I mean, I, I think there's a fundamental like disconnect here between your guys' understanding of how rent prices are set and what actually happens. Rent prices are not a function of price plus, of, of costs plus profit. If that was true, 
the rent, the price of rent would have remained the same since basically the 1970s. But what we've seen is that rents have been raised, increasing beyond wage growth since about 2002, despite the fact that between the mid-2000s and the mid-2010s, it was actually the cheapest it's ever been in New Zealand to own a rental property. There's no correlation between costs and the actual price of rent. Rent is a, rent is a factor of the money that people have and what people are willing to pay. And that's what that's why rents are so high in Ireland and uh, and New Zealand at the moment is because there's just not enough there's not enough properties. And I mean, I wouldn't advocate for a system as complex and bureaucratic as the Irish okay. system. But we we are you know similar to them in that we also basically before this had very few to to basically no restrictions on when landlords can and can't raise rents. And I think that's what we need to be looking at in addition to massive new builds of state and private housing. A shock. At the end of the day, we just need yeah. more housing. Nice to have you on, A shock. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. That is A shock Jacobs from uh, Renders United. By the way, rents in Ireland uh, had amongst the highest increase in the EU, rising by 74% in the last uh, 11 years. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. We have Heather Roy with us, and we also have... Alan Blackman. Lady Tureti Moxon has penned an opinion piece in the New Zealand Herald today calling for charges to be brought against the Crown. This on the back of watching Crown evidence on the live stream over the last couple of weeks from the Royal Commission of Inquiring Abuse and Care. Lady Moxon says it has placed a burning spotlight on the entrenched and tyrannical abuse of the state upon Māori here in Aotearoa. And instead of propping up an oppressive and inhumane system, it should now be dismantled. Lady Tureti Moxon is chairwoman of the National Urban Māori Authority and managing director of Te Kohau Health. Lady Moxon, kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. Nice to have you on, Lady Moxon. And you're saying the issue is so significant that a class action should be filed, holding the state to account. Do you want to explain that a bit for us? That, that, that's absolutely correct. Because, of, because what that has... What has happened to all of these survivors has been nothing short of of absolutely um, tyrannical. It's been tyrannical, and it has been over a long period of time. And it's just this this terrible unleashing of the violence upon Māori all these years that it has actually held up the state as being the ones who are solving everybody's problems, when in actual fact what they have done is they've created these problems. They've created the things that we are dealing with now in society that that, um, people, you know, if you're talking about the crime, if you're talking about gangs, if you're talking about mental health, talking about housing just now. Mm. You know, you're talking about all these things and it has been actually created by the state and the state, I believe, needs to atone for that. We've got a panel with us uh, as well, uh, Lady Moxham, but uh, one thing I want to touch on because it has been touched on by others and it's you, you mentioned it in the piece, uh, Labour passed the oversight of Oranga Tamariki System and Children and Young People's Commission Bill. Now, so it replaces the Children's Commissioner with the Children and Young People's Commission, and we all know the strong advocacy and voice some of those have had, the likes of, say, for example, Judge Andrew Beercroft. Uh, you have taken aim at this 
also? Yes, I have. And, and the reason for that, as well we know, is that Judge Beecroft came up very strongly um, against Oranga Tamariki and what they were doing um, and what the state was doing in relation to the children that they had in their care. And, you know, that, that's what happens, of course, when people speak out because um, governments, and this is successive, this, this is not just now and mm. at this moment in time, it's been happening forever and a day. As soon as people start to talk out, speak out and speak the truth, um, they change it. And they change it into something else. And I, and I think that that's a pity that we should be doing that right now, because because um, because we need we need voices that actually are voices that speak for everybody, and and give their truth. And you know, he investigated all of those things. So I actually think right. that what they're doing is wrong. Okay, um, Heather Roy. Yeah. Um Lady Moxon's article um, raises a whole lot of issues, and um, you know, if only we had hours to discuss yes. them all. <laughs> yes, indeed. So many in yeah. there, but I, yeah. I also the piece that really resonated with me in the article, Lady Moxon, was also the oversight of Orangi Tamariki and the uh, Children's Commissioner uh, basically being completely disempowered. And look, it's not to judge uh, Andrew Beecroft was a spectacular children's commissioner because he was fearless about raising these issues. But there's been a whole string of uh, impressive children's commissioners before him yeah. too, Dame Cindy Kiro, and th they were all fearless actually and raised the issues that really need to be dealt with uh, and the lessons learned yeah. going forward. And I think that in her article she talked about the opposition by all the other parties in Parliament to that bill going through, which really fell on deaf ears and um, I think that it comes back to that yeah. lack of consultation and listening to the people that uh, I, I raised earlier. Lady Moxon, just stay there. We'll get Alan and you can fold the two uh, into a response. Alan. <laughs> yeah, Lady Moxon, you talk about um, the abuse of the state, the, the state being sort of this whole um, entity, I guess, but maybe it's not the state per se, it's, it's certain people within the state, surely, and certain, you know, certain bad people who have, um, you know, done unquestionably bad things, but within that state there are also really, really good people who try and try and try to do their best for these mm. unfortunate people. So that, that would be my comment. And plus, I mean, Andrew Beecroft, my God, he is just a ridiculously sensible man. Every time <laughs> I've heard him on the radio, he just... Sounds really sensible. Yeah. So, you no, know, Lady Moxon, I've got a final thought to wrap this up. So, look, uh, I can recall when Oranga, Oranga Tamariki came into being because it wasn't that long ago. It was supposed to be the line of the sand. Prior to that, SIFs, you know, a child, youth, and family. SIF uh, had been under continuous review, um, restructured 14 times. Can I ask you, if, Oranga Tam if not Oranga Tamariki, what? What should. Well, 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 what should be happening yeah. now is that that Māori should be taking care of Māori. We should be taking care of ourselves, not the state knowing all good, all, everything that's supposed to be good for us. They were there to protect our babies, to protect our children, and to protect our families, but they didn't. They didn't, and that's what we need to remember. They didn't protect them. These... These survivors are telling their stories. They are tell, saying what happened to them. And we must listen. We must have a hearing about that. 
Because if we don't, all we will do is just build up this huge beast that's hungry, hungry for more and more people to go through it, for it to survive. And we need to let it go and redo this so that Māori can look after Māori. And, you know, everybody thinks that that somebody, some great person out there. You're right. There were good people in there. But unfortunately, the actions of of the whole system have been very detrimental to us as Māori and to all the survivors who spoke before the Commission. And that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to remember. Lady Moxon, kia ora. Thank you for your time on the panel today. Uh, Lady Tureti Moxon, the Chairwoman of the National Urban Māori uh, Authority. Uh, lovely to have your feedback. You can email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz, and you can text me, 2101. I'm Wallace Chapman. Nice to be back with you after um, a, a few days of COVID-19. By the way, gosh, I had a terrible thing. I, I had um, uh, something where the food tasted like ammonia. <laughs> Ooh, and so I, I lost my appetite for the whole week, and it was oh. really, really nauseating. I'm wondering if anybody has, else has experienced it. Apparently 5% of the people get that. Mind you, that's, wasn't that's blue very cheese good. taste, you know. Well, it's no, kind of, <laughs> it, it kind of not is. blue cheese yeah. taste, Alan. You're coming up with the bangers today, aren't you, with your hats? Gosh, almighty. Anyway, uh, it is uh, 8 to 5, the panel. Uh, very different st- topic here. What gives you the ick, quote, unquote, when you're out on the road? BMW drivers? Well, you wouldn't be alone. Beamers have just been ranked the ickiest car, in their words, in a UK survey. And there might be something to that other than blatant stereotyping. Multiple studies do suggest that owners of luxury cars are more likely to engage in reckless driving. So we thought, well, who to get on to comment about this? What about the person who does a guide on cars? It's called the Dog and Lemon Guide. You all know him. Clive Matthew Wilson. Kia ora, Clive. Kia ora. Now, Beamer drivers, um, are they getting too much stick? Well, you know, it's like, you know, the, every human is born weak and powerless, so the craving for power is built into the human instinct. And we have a huge commercial industry you know, whether you're talking about sort of weightlifting gyms or people selling luxury cars or people selling big macho youths, you know, that are capitalising on this basic human craving. And people with money are paying vast amounts of money to get a temporary sense of, of that they're better than everyone else. And maybe they should have their own lane on the on the Wow. With you and me. But that's the reality of the situation. And study after study show that. And I, and I, I flatly, I, I, I drive when I'm not driving test cars, which I do for a living. Um, I drive the roughest looking car I can find because it's my end. Do you? Um, snobbery. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, Clive, I thought I was a blatant stereotyper, but you've just charged at the gate like a ball. I mean, you're a ma- this is massive stereotyping. You're basically saying that people who drive BMWs are the kids, Clive. Well, I'm not saying everyone is, but I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason. I mean, for example, <laughs> if you had a gang moving in next door, would you be happy? Or would you maybe be a little All right. concerned? No, <laughs> enough of that. Please, Clive, I want to stick with the cars. Uh, Heather Roy, what do you think of this? <laughs> I don't know. I thought you were talking about driving behaviours when you introduced the topic. No. Um, and the thing you, that gives me the... Do you drive BMW, is, Heather? No, I don't. I drive a Mazda. Only... 
I drive a Mazda. But the thing that gives me the ick is people who follow far too close. I don't care what sort of car it is. I hate it when people follow too close. You know if you put your head to put your foot on the brake quickly, they'd crash into you at the back. I don't know yeah. if BMW drivers do that more often than Al- anybody else. but yeah. Alan, your thoughts on what Clive is saying? Oh, there. look, Clive, I'm going to quote you on that. Stereotypes are there for a reason. That's a great quote. I love that. Um, I think second on the list after Beamers were uh, Skodas, I believe. Yeah. And every time I hear the word Skoda, I always think back to what was it, the East Coast Bay's by-election? or Pac- No, it might have been Pakaranga back in the late 70s, early 80s, and Social Credit won it. Right. And, the, oh, nas- and the national candidate. Um, berated all the people in Pakaranga for wearing crimpling suits and driving huh. Skodas. <laughs> uh-huh. It was a classic New Zealand days, one. In those days, Skoda, of course, was owned by the Chiefs of Bargain government and now it's owned by Volkswagen. Yeah. yeah. So they're a bit they've better changed. now. They're a bit better now. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually really interested in this study that suggests that owners of luxury cars do um, engage in more reckless driving, uh, Clive. Is that, is that borne by research? Multiple studies have shown that, you know, my tax is paid for this road, so I'm going to use both sides of it, you know. <laughs> but Mercedes... You know, oh. Clive? Yeah, I mean, there is really a, a, a huge industry in encouraging people to feel this, to feel better than you and me. And it's really, really dangerous, you know, um, because it's not just that they may hurt themselves, they're quite likely to hurt other people. I suppose when it comes to the psychology, I mean, let's just face it. I mean, you you, you test drive cars. Um, uh, uh, that's what we, we we often define, or some people define themselves by the sort of car they drive. Right, Clive? Whether it be a Lamborghini. I mean, I don't know anyone who drives a Lamborghini, but or a, or a Maserati, or a or a Mazda like Heather, or indeed an electric vehicle. You know, it 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 does say something in a sense about who you are. In society, well, it's more like who you'd like to be, oh. and, and our entire culture is based on fantasy. You know, you see in America, you see seventy-five-year-olds dressed like teenagers after multiple facelifts. It doesn't fool anybody. Everyone is terrified of death. Everyone is terrified that they're going to be powerless and helpless. So there's an entire industry that helps them fill that gap, and for a little while until the you know, eventually um, the end happens anyway. I mean, it's far, far better just to accept impermanence, accept that we are, you know, fundamentally, you know, one if the, one of the planets moved a couple of metres to the left, we'd cease to exist tomorrow. Oh. So I've, got a, I've got a question for Clive. If we want a car that equalised everybody, what would it be? Oh, great question. <laughs> oh, really good question. Well, I mean, you know, I'm really sorry to say this, but I recommend Toyota Corollas. <laughs> <laughs> They're very safe. The good old Toyota Corolla, Clive Matthews Wilson. My goodness me, chest drives for a living. He comes out with the, the old Corolla, eh? Well, well, well. No, look at that. Pic- look. Remember, remember, yeah. I'm the only motoring writer in New Zealand, as far as yeah. I'm aware, that actually has ever run a garage and is a real mechanic. Good and on you, Clive. The other side of those, you, 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 there's a reason people buy Corollas. All right, good uh-huh. on you, Clive. All right, look. Oh, what am I hearing? Here oh, we go. <laughs> they said pump it. No, they they didn't. said pump it. Only 50% of them did. Wow. <laughs> oh, the, good, the good half of the panellists is Alan Blackman. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45.